the first question is, um, actually the two questions, what is the difference between depression and dispassion? How can we steer towards the latter, that is dispassion, when one is caught strongly in the former, that is depression? And it says in verse 78 of Akshar Manamalai, uh, Bhagwan sings, O Arunachala, I am a person of little intelligence who prays to you whenever overwhelmed by sufferings. Therefore, bestow your grace upon me without, without cheating me. My question is, aren't we cheating when we turn to Arunachala, but only when we are suffering? Why does Bhagwan say, Arunachal, bestow grace without cheating me? The implication in verse 78, though I am such a person of, of little intelligence who remembers to, uh, to beg for your grace um, only when my suffering becomes excessive, that is the implication, though I am such a person without um, uh, deceiving, here deceiving can also mean uh, disappointing, or uh, it can mean deceiving, cheating, or disappointing. Uh, me, be gracious. So I, I am totally unworthy because I'm such a person. Only when my suffering becomes excessive, do I turn to you. But in spite of me be, being being such, you without uh, without. Uh, disappointing me, um, you should uh, be gracious to me. Um, it's a prayer. Be gracious to me. Um, uh, that is the sense in which uh, Bhagavan is saying in this verse. Um, regarding the difference between um, uh, uh, dispassion and, um, and, um, and depression, the the uh, the difference is the difference between happiness and unhappiness. The more dispassionate we are, the more happy we will be, because we will be unaffected by whatever may happen. Because we are we are detached from we are um, what is. Uh, sometimes called holy indifference. We we have that udasina baba. We are indifferent to to the joys and sorrows of life. <clears throat> so that dispassion, we we gain such dispassion, such veragia, to the extent to which we hold on to self attentiveness. The more we hold on to self attentiveness, the more ego subsides, and the happier we will be. So the um, the uh, dispassion arises from uh, from surrender to the extent we to which we are willing to let go of other things. We, uh, in other words, the, the extent to which we become indifferent to whatever may happen, to that extent we will be happy. Whereas if we wallow in depression, we are naturally unhappy. When I say wallow in depression, that may sound um, that may sound uh, rather un unkind, unsympathetic, but. Ultimately, in this spiritual path, we have to take responsibility. If that is whatever we experience is the result of our allowing ourselves to be swayed by certain vasanas. So if we if we 
are in a depressed state of mind, that depression is not forced on us. Though it may seem to be forced on us, we obviously we 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 it seems to us that we don't choose to be depressed, but we always are free to uh, to extract ourselves from that depression by holding on to self-attentiveness. It may seem very difficult when we're in the depressed state to hold on to the self-attentiveness, but that freedom is there within us. We may not be aware of that freedom, but ultimately our real nature is infinite freedom. Because as Bhagavan says, Yatatamai Uludu Apmasarupa Mandre, what actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Apmasarupa means the Swarupa or real nature of ourself. So since we alone exist, there is no, nothing other than us that can limit our freedom. So we are infinitely free. When we rise as ego, we limit ourselves as a person, and so our freedom seems to be limited. But actually, we are always free. So, if we have, uh, if we are willing to surrender ourselves to let go of everything, we no depression can can touch us. So, if we're depressed, it means that we are we are. It's because we are reluctant to surrender ourselves. So the the price to be paid for freedom from depression is to surrender the one who is depressed. If we surrender ego, the one who is depressed, we will be free of the depression. So we um, people may say, "Oh, if a person has is is clinically depressed, then how can such advice be appropriate?" When we talk about clinical depression, yes, there are certain there are there are conditions of mental ill health um, caused by which are, are believed to be caused by certain um, uh, biochemical. Uh, uh, there, there may be certain. It may be to do with the chemistry of the brain, but a person is pressed. These are all the theories of 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 modern science. But according to Bhagavan, ultimately we are each responsible for our own state of mind. So, if we have that love to cling to self attentiveness, we can at least begin to move in the direction of surrender. We may not be able to surrender ourselves completely, but as Bhagavan said, um, someone in Maharshi's Gospel, I think, someone says to Bhagavan, but Bhagavan, complete surrender is impossible. Bhagavan says, yes, complete surrender may be impossible at first, but partial surrender is always possible. So um, we can all at least begin to move in the direction of overcoming uh, depression. The way to overcome depression is surrender. The more we surrender ourselves, the less we will be affected by these states of mind. So, um, Bhagavan's path, the path of self-investigation and self-surrender, this is the ultimate solution to all problems. Because of our lack of love to hold on to self-attentiveness, it's may seem to us to be very difficult. It may seem to us to be much easier to succumb to the depression than to hold on to self-attentiveness and surrender ourselves. But all we can do is we can 
try as much as possible. The more we try to hold on to self-attentiveness, the more we try to surrender ourselves, the less we will be affected by depression and so on. None of us want to be affected by depression, but unless we are willing to surrender ourselves completely, we none of us are immune to depression. So but we can gain immunity from depression only by trying our best to follow this simple path of self-investigation and self-surrender that Bhagavan has taught us. Uh, uh, after all, the, the, the depression we experience, it's all ultimately just thoughts. To whom are all these thoughts? To me. That way we need to turn our attention back to ourselves. Who is it who is feeling low? Who is it who is feeling depressed? Who is it who is... Um, who who is unhappy, who is it who is, um, uh, to whom did this whole life seem to be bleak? That if we turn our attention back within, we can turn our, yes, this world is a bleak world. This, this, the mind is a bleak mind. That, that is, uh, the mind is dreaming one dream after another, creating, causing so many problems to us. Why should we continue feeding this mind by allowing our attention to go outwards? Let us turn within and subside more and more into our heart. This is the only effective way to overcome depression, elation, and all states of mind ultimately can be overcome by... Um, only by self-investigation. This doesn't mean that, for example, if you, certain people may be, some people suffer from a condition called bipolar, what used to be called manic depression. Sometimes they feel very elated, sometimes they feel very depressed. And um, there are certain medicines are given to help to stabilize their mood. If you're suffering from such a condition, there's no wrong in taking those medicines because be, keeping yourself in a stable mood can only help you to turn within more. So sometimes certain aids, medical aids, may be necessary if you are uh, if you are susceptible to to clinical levels of depression. But ultimately, the ultimate solution is not in these medicines. These medicines may be a palliative. They may they may offer symptomatic relief. But the, the, to get to the root cause of all these problems, root cause of everything is ego. That is the problem we need to tackle. That is the problem which we can tackle only by means of self-investigation and self-surrender. So but med, what Bhagavan has given us is the ultimate medicine. Sometimes some other medicine, I, I wouldn't, if someone would, sometimes people ask me, they, they say the doctors have prescribed certain psychiatric drugs or medicines to help to stabilize their mood or something. They ask, is, is, it, is it wrong to take those medicines? I would always say, no, we, 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 just like we take medicines for the bodily condition, we can take medicines also for the mental conditions. But that is not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is only turning within. So we, we can take, the, if, if, if it's beneficial for us, if doctors have prescribed that we should take certain medicine, it's wise to take those medicines. And a lot of people get into trouble when they prematurely discontinue such medicines. So it's good to take such medicines, but 
don't just stop with these these medicines because these are only a temporary solution. The long-term solution, the ultimate solution, is only turning within. So the cure for depression is dispassion. And dispassion can be cultivated only by self-investigation and self-surrender. I hope that is an adequate answer, but if there's anything more you want to ask on this, please don't hesitate to ask. Uh, the second question, Michael, is um, in happiness and the art of being, you state even self-investigation is necessary only because we have not yet surrendered ourselves completely. Verse 6 of Akshar Manamalai reminds me of this. Would you say in certain contexts that self-surrender is superior to self-investigation, though they are ultimately one? Thank you. Um, no. Self-surrender is our goal. The means to that goal is self-investigation. So when I said, but when, when I wrote, but, um, uh, but self-investigation is only necessary because we haven't surrendered ourselves, is because surrender is... What is the goal? Manonasa, eradication of ego. Those are all just synonyms for complete surrender. If our surrender becomes complete, there'll be no one left to, to investigate. That is, who is to do the investigation? It's only ego. So when the ego is surrendered, when there's no ego remaining, how can there be anyone to, um, to how, how can there be any self-investigation? So, uh, that is so, as you say, ultimately self investigation and self surrender are complete. So the self surrender will become complete only when the self investigation becomes complete. That's only when we turn our attention for full 180 degrees. So we cease to be aware of anything other than ourselves. Then we will be aware of ourselves as pure awareness, which is what we actually are. When we are aware of ourselves as pure awareness, ego is thereby destroyed. As simple as that. So the, the, the means to complete surrender is self-investigation. But the self-surrender begins with trying to surrender our will, trying to give up our likes and dislikes and so on. So initially, self-surrender leads to self-investigation. But the means to make the surrender complete is only self-investigation. We cannot surrender ourselves completely without self-investigation because self-investigation means turning our attention back towards ourselves. The nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to anything other than ourselves. So we can surrender ego completely only by turning our attention uh, uh, back towards ourself. The more we turn our attention towards ourself, the more ego subsides. In other words, the more we surrender. So they, we, it is impossible to surrender completely without self-investigation. You could say, well, what about if you just give up attending to anything else? Isn't that sufficient? That will result in manolaya. If the mind subsides in manolaya, it will rise again as Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Upadesha India. So manolaya is not our aim. Our aim is manonasa. For manonasa can be brought about only by self-investigation. So the permanent uh, dissolution of ego 
for Manonasa can be brought about only by self-investigation. So complete self-surrender can be achieved only by means of self-investigation. So there's no question of uh, superior or inferior. Ultimately, they are one and the same. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. The next question is, uh, how can we increase... How can we increase the love to surrender? I'm aware that the more we practice Atma Vichara, the more clarity we get. But is there any other way to increase the love of surrender? Bhagwan said, love is the mother of Gyan. Thank you. That is the best prayer for love is self-investigation. Because we... <clears throat> The love we want is the love to know and to be what we actually are. Trying to know and to be what we actually are is obviously the best prayer for that. When, when our mind comes out and we've, we, we feel we don't have sufficient love to turn within, then that is where Akshramla is really useful because these, these, these verbalized prayers are a very, very powerful aid to re-enkindling re the, the, the love in our heart. That the more we read these prayers, the more we have love to turn within. Because that's what these prayers are all about. It's all, all of Akshramlai, ultimately, it's a prayer for the love to turn within. So the best prayer, the best way, way of praying to turn within is trying to turn within. When we feel we don't have enough love for that, then we pray in the form of Akram like. And of course, re reading or thinking about Bhagavan's teachings is also a very great aid because the more we read works like Nana, Uludhuna, Padesh, Undi, and so on, uh, I'm a, I'm a the more these give us enthusiasm for, for this turning within. So all of Bhagavan's works are great aid to turning within, whether it's the, the, the more ostensibly devotional works like Arunachal Stuti Panchikam or the more uh, ostensibly uh, teaching works like Uludunapdu um, uh, and so on. They, these, these, these different texts Bhagavan has given us, they're all complementary. Um, so they're all very powerful aids. Bhagavan's words are, are the most... <clears throat> if we want any external aid to turning within, Bhagavan's words are the most powerful external aid. Because his words are constantly pointing us back, constantly driving into, dinning into us, the need to turn within. If we want to be happy, there's only one way, that is to turn within, to try to be self-attentive more and more and more. The next question is, for busy householders, is it useful to have a set time for meditation and inquiry practice, a length of time, a certain number of times per day? And what might that practice look like to help us progress on the path? Um, Bhagavan has given us a very simple uh, prescription for how long we should meditate, when we should meditate. He's very clear and precise um, uh, prescription Bhagavan has given, always. That is, every moment in life is an opportunity for us to turn our attention back to ourselves. 
Bhagavan never prescribed you, you should do this for 20 minutes morning and evening or you should um, sit in Padmasana or you should. When Bhagavan was asked, what is the best asana? He said Nidityasana. That means practice of self-investigation is itself the best asana. So every moment, is there any moment when we do not exist? Is there any moment when we are not aware of our existence? So we, we, every moment is an opportunity for us to turn our attention back to ourselves. Every moment of waking and dream. Of course, in sleep we can't do so because there's nowhere to there's there's no there's in sleep we alone exist, so there's no opportunity to turn anywhere. But in waking and dream, our aim should be to be self-attentive at all times. Um, whatever we may be doing or not doing, Bhagavan often used to say, if you, if you have loved to practice self-investigation, if you have loved to hold on to self-attentiveness, you will be able to do so in the midst of a battlefield. If you cannot do so in the midst of a battlefield, you will not be able to do so even if you go and sit in a cave in the Himalayas. If the whole problem is not the external circumstances. Our problem is our like. Do we have sufficient liking to turn within or not? Whether we are all these external things, being a householder or being a sannyasi, Bhagavan said all this is according to prarabdha. That's why Bhagavan never recommended any form of external renunciation. He wasn't opposed to it. Well, he said, if it's your destiny to be a sannyasi, you'll be a sannyasi. If it's your destiny to be a householder, to have 10 children and have to work throughout your life, you will do so. It's all, all these outward things are determined by prarabdha. But real renunciation, that is, Bhagavan's path is a path of renunciation, but not outward renunciation. The real renunciation is turning our attention within. That is, re, re, that is the renunciation that is required. So it doesn't matter what our external circumstances may be. Regarding setting aside time, some people find it helpful to set aside some time, morning and evening. To, but I think it is fair to say most of us find, as we go deeper in this path, but that is not actually so very helpful. Because I can I can set aside um, uh, from three thirty to four o'clock in the morning, and from uh, six thirty to seven in the evening, I will I will practice self investigation. I can set myself a routine like that. But will I be when I actually sit? What will my what will be occupying my mind? If I've got some worries, my mind will be dwelling on its worries. I'll try and bring it back, and again it'll go back to the worries. So. It, it is as easy to be self-attentive in the midst of activities as it is when setting aside time for meditation. It is true, but at times when our mind is not directly engaged in any other work, that is an opportunity to go a little deeper. But we can find such times here and there throughout the day. We don't have to set aside 20 minutes or half an hour for do that. It, if, if we really have love to be self-attentive, we'll be finding opportunities here and there. When we are, when we are traveling to work, we're standing on the bus or standing in a queue or, um, or there's so many 
there are times in life when we have opportunities to turn within, when our mind isn't preoccupied with anything else. Um, even, even simple things, when we're eating, we can be attending to ourselves. When we go to the toilet, we can attend to ourselves. It, it, there are so many opportunities if we have a liking to do so. And many of the things that we normally assume require attention. For example, if you're driving a car, obviously you need to pay attention to what's happening. But in practice, very little attention is needed to drive a car. You can you can drive drive a car if you're it's a familiar road. You can drive and reach your destination. When you reach your destination, if someone asks you, "Was the were, were the lights red at such and such a turning?" you won't be able to remember because with with when once activities become routine, they go on almost on autopilot. So even at such times, you can be self attentive. In fact, you'll be driving better if you're, if you're, rather than allowing your mind to be wandering over so many thoughts that may distract you, if you're just hold, calmly holding on to that background self-attentiveness, you'll actually be driving better than if, you're, um, than if you're thinking about this worry, that worry, or things that may easily distract you. So it takes practice, but... With practice, we can be holding on to this self-attentiveness, whatever we may be doing. As Bhagavan said, even in the midst of a battlefield, we can hold on to self-attentiveness if we have sufficient love. I hope this is a helpful answer. That is, I'll just add one more thing. If if you like to set aside time morning and evening, if you find that helpful, by all means do so. Bhagavan would never discourage that. But generally what he, if anyone asked about such things, he wouldn't give any prescription. He would say, try to be self-attentive always. Every moment is a good opportunity. There's no opportunity like the present. If we think, I'll do it in future. Or I missed the opportunity in the past. We are we are thinking about things other than ourselves. Rather than thinking about the past or future, let us attend to who am I here and now. Uh, the next question is: Why is it that I'm why is it that I'm tearing whenever I think of Bhagwan or Arunachala? Thank you, Michael. It has to be Bhagwan's grace that Michael is able to interpret Tamil verses so beautifully. Tearing means having tears, uh, weeping. Is that what is meant? I think so. I think that's oh, right. What right. It means. Okay. It is natural when we when you when we have love, it naturally uh, love is not an emotion, but love uh, creates emotions within us. When the love is intense, we feel. Bhagavan talks about in Akshramlai, he talks uh, uh, about the body melting in a river of tears. So the emotion can become very strong, very intense when the, when the love is intense. So uh, um, I, I think Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said, people spend, uh, shed buckets of tears for wife and wealth and all these worldly things. If we could shed, if those tears that we shed over all these worldly things, if we could shed those tears for God, 
that both the tears we shed for God are, uh, are what uh, are what cleanse our heart, cleanse, uh, purify the mind. The mind. Nothing is so purifying as weeping for the love of God. So, so uh, sh shedding tears or feeling emotion when we think about Bhagavan, when we think about his teachings, when we think about the love that he had for us and the love that we should be having for him, it's natural tear, emotion comes to us. That is good. That is, there's, um, Bhagavan talks about the way to go within, heart melting with love. In the verse, Ariyati Tarajivara Dahavari Jaguhail, Arivai Rami Paramatuma Naranachala Ramanan. In the first two lines that I've just recited, Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatman that blissfully exists as awareness in the heart, in the cave of the heart lotus of all different jivas, beginning with Hari. Then in the third line, he begins by saying, Parival Ulum Uruha, heart melting with love. When the heart melts with love and one enters into the heart where that supreme dwells, the eye of awareness will be opened and, um, and uh, the truth will be known. It will reveal itself. So uh, uh, this heart melting with love is, is prescribed by Bhagavan. That is the way to go within. And, and I think Murugana has written a verse. Um, Sadom used to often quote it. But um, when when will when will Vichara be successful? Only when we have wept and wept and wept and wept, and with that intense love, but uh, but 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 gives rise to that weeping, and that is further. Purified by that weeping, only by such love will we be able to succeed in this path of Atmavichara. So, bhakti and jnana are inseparable. The path of jnana, as taught by Bhagavan, is parabhakti. That is the ultimate bhakti. And bhakti, love naturally arouses emotions in us. Bhagavan, on, the, on the, the very last moments of Bhagavan's bodily life, when devotees were saying Akshramamalai, but he opened his eyes and, and tears trickled out of the outer corner of his eyes. That is the tears of love. So Bhagavan, Bhagavan had so much love for Arunachala. Up to the very last moment of his bodily life, he was shedding tears for Aranachala. So there's nothing. If whatever tears we shed for him are his blessings, it's only by his grace, but such tears come to us. The next question, Arunachal is the unmoving form and Guru Ramana, the human form of the one self, appearing and disappearing in the self. Devotion to these forms would mean turning attention away from the formless self. Do we, how do we reconcile this? Why, why does Bhagavan or Arunachal, why do they appear outwardly in, in form? 
in the form of a hill and in human form. Why do they, well, they are one. Arunacha, why does Arunacha Ramana appear in the form of a hill and in the human form of Bhagavan? Only to turn our attention within. Those external forms have a special power to create love in our heart to turn within. Bhagavan has, has explained this very beautifully in verse 10 of, um, of Arunacha uh, Padikam. I was referring to that earlier, but it's worth going through that. I mean, that's such an important verse. It's worth going through it again. Um, what Bhagavan says there, Patanum Pudumei, Patanum Pudumei means I've seen something new. It means it implies Pudumei literally means newness, but it implies here uh, uh, something wonderful. I've seen a wonder. We vali kanta paravatam, the magnetic hill that seizes or forcibly attracts the soul. And then he goes on to describe the process, how that outward form of the hill turns our attention back within. He says, Orutarum idanei otidum virin. Of the soul who thinks of it once, what does he do to such a soul? Shesteye uh, oduki. Uh, subduing the mischievous activity of the soul who thinks of it even once. Mischievous activity means the outward flowing mental activity of the soul. Oru tanadu abimukam aha etu, pulling, dragging, or attracting that soul to face inwards towards itself. That is towards Aranatya, because Aranatya is shiny in Mahata's eye. Um, Adei tanbol achilama chedu, making it, making that soul motionless like itself. Ab inuir bali column, it accepts uh, that sweet soul as bali. Bali means food offered in sacrifice. So accepting bali means he swallows that soul. And then he ends that verse by. Uh, and then he says, Ichten, what a wonder is this? And then he ends the verse saying, Otumin uikal. Sorry, sorry, Otu uimin. Be saved by thinking. Thinking of what? Uikal, uh, he addresses, O souls, be saved by thinking. Ulum adanil, Ulum adil, Oli iv uikali arunamagirie. By be saved by thinking of this great Arana hill, Weir uh, Kali, uh, the killer of the soul. Ulum Adil Oliya, but who shines in the heart. So, Aranachla, the, the, this great Arana hill is the killer of the soul and he shines in the heart. So, in this verse, Bhagavan clearly explains how Aranachla. By our thinking of his outward form, he will work within our mind to pull it back within. So there is no, there is no, we, we cannot think of the outward form of Arunachala without having that love to turn within, uh, aroused in our heart. The more we turn within, the more that love will increase. 
And the more we have love to turn within, when we look outwards, the more love we will have for the outward forms of Arunachala and Ramana. Because those outward forms are outward forms of that which is shiny in our heart as I. The next question, Michael, is, I still find a lot of happiness in outside things, such as relationships or beauty. Can you explain why we enjoy these things? Everyone has explained very simply. I'll just in, finish the question. Sorry, have I? Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, there's just a bit more. Once these moments of happiness are gone, I feel despair. And after a while, I feel empty, as if life has nothing to offer and joy is so fleeting. Right. Um, Bhagavan says in the 14th paragraph of, um, of Nana, he has answered your question uh, very, very clearly. He says, um, uh, <clears throat> I'll read the paragraph, many of the paragraph from the beginning up to the, what is called sukha, happiness, is only the swarupa of oneself, the swarupa of Atman. Uh, sukha and Atma swarupa are not different. So happiness and our own real nature are not different. Atma sukham uh, alone exists. Uh, that alone is real. What is called sukha is not found or obtained in even one of the objects of the world. We think that happiness is obtained from, from them because of our aviveka. Aviveka means lack of discrimination. So Bhagavan has answered your question here. Why do we think we get happiness from external things? Because of our, our lack of discrimination. Because we have a desire for external things, when that desire is satisfied, we feel happiness. But the happiness is not coming from that external thing. If I have a desire for um, the latest iPhone or for a new car or for a big house or uh, a promotion at work or anything, if I'm hankering, if I'm if that if I'm hankering with that desire, when that desire is fulfilled, that that hankering is is pacified. So I feel happy for a brief while, and then again, okay, this 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 car is nice. But my neighbor's now got an even better car, so I want a better car. Okay, I've got a promotion, but there's still people up above me. I want a higher promotion. So we, whatever we, whatever, wherever we seek happiness, it may give us, uh, we, we may, it may seem to give us happiness briefly, but we, it will never satisfy us. We'll always want more, 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 more. So there cannot be, whether it be in worldly wealth or in um, loving relationships or in um, acquiring learning or whatever we, or acquiring power, people like the political power or whatever, wherever we seek happiness, we will not be satisfied. It may give us an inkling of happiness briefly, and then we want more, and we want more, and we want more. So there is no happiness to be obtained from anything other than ourselves. Whatever happiness we seem to gain from other things is actually happiness that is already within us. Because our, our, the, 
the desire for anything other than ourselves is an agitation. When that agitation is satisfied, pacified, we feel a little bit of the happiness within ourselves. So I, I well, <clears throat> if that answer doesn't satisfy you, no answer will satisfy you because that's uh, the answer given by Bhagavan himself. So that is the ultimate answer to the, that question of yours. In Happiness and the Art of Being, you state that God or Guru will never force us, but he will be constantly nurturing the seed of such willingness or love in our heart to surrender. Would you please speak more to us about how our Guru will never force us? Thank you. <clears throat> guru, Bhagavan, is not other than ourself. He is our own real nature. So, he he will never um our, that that is this path is a path of self surrender self surrender requires willingness if we are not willing to surrender ourselves he is not going to kill us he will he will never kill us until we are willing to give ourselves wholly to him till we are ready to be killed until ego is ready to uh, give itself up entirely, he will never force this upon us. But he how he how his grace works is by is by cultivating that willingness in our heart. For that our cooperation is necessary. That is why in the twelfth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, um he, Bhagavan assures us God and Guru are in truth not different. Just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return, in other words, will not escape, so those who have been caught in the look or glance of Guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. There he gives us an assurance, but he adds an important uh, uh, proviso, an important caveat. Eninum Guru Katya Bari Padi Nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path the Guru has shown. Why? Because the path he has shown is to turn back within and thereby to surrender ourselves. If we don't want to turn back within, he's not going to force us to do so. He's not going to, he's not going to. He, he he will he turns he draws our attention inwards by giving us the love to attend look within. So he would. It is not the nature of God or Guru ever to force anything on us. Ever to he will not he will not um, kill us until we are willing to be killed by him. Until we want nothing other than to be killed by him. Until we are willing to. Give ourselves entirely to him, then only he will kill us. Because we because we have no other way of doing so in language, we are saying he, but he is we, he is ourself. So until we are willing to to die, we will not we will not kill ourselves. So it's um it's <clears throat> It's just the nature, it's just our nature is such. Once we have risen as ego, we will not, um, and remember, our rising as ego is not real. Even when we rise as ego, 
truly we remain as we always are. So this egoism is a fiction. But this, this fictional ego will die only when it's willing to die. Because this ego in reality is nothing other than ourselves. So um, that, that willingness on our part is absolutely essential. But that willingness is given by him. Any willingness we have is coming only from him because he is that love. He is the source of all love. And the love comes with clarity. He is also the source of all clarity. The more we, we have inner clarity, the more we have Vivaka, the more we will seek happiness within ourselves rather than outside. So, happen, so love and clarity, bhakti and jnana go hand in hand. In this path, what we are seeking, we are seeking that, but that, that, that love and that clarity, and finally we lose ourselves in that love and clarity, which is our own real nature. In happiness and the art of being, you write that the only food that can truly be considered as being sattvic is that which is organically produced, fairly traded, and above all, vegan. You also state that ideally the food should be raw, freshly cooked from raw or minimally processed ingredients, and by a person in a happy mood and with kind, caring and loving thoughts in their mind, because kindness and love are the most important sattvic ingredients that can be added to food. Would you speak, please speak more about this latter requirement? Okay. <laughs> that all sounds very prescriptive. Um, the reason that was included in the book was one particular person had questioned me relentlessly about this. So I was there talking about what is the ideal. And that person then said, have you included that in your book? So for their satisfaction, I included that. Bhagavan, Bhagavan was far simpler. Bhagavan simply said, Mitta Sattvika Haranyama. All this was said because someone was asking me, what is, how can we know what is sattvic? So uh, it, it came to a point where I said, ideally, this, this is the ideal. But it, sometimes the ideal is not always practical. Organic food is not always available, and it's not always affordable. Even if it, it's available, many of us can't afford organic food. The, the, the most important principle is ahimsa. As far as possible, we should uh, we should produce we should consume food that has been produced without causing harm. That is one argument in favor of organic, because when pesticides are used, that is causing harm to some some organism. So, but there's there's no such thing as perfect ahimsa. Uh, what is the root of all himsa? Himsa means harm. Ahimsa means non-harm. What is the root of all himsa is our rising as ego. So once we've risen as ego, we can't completely avoid himsa. If we want to avoid himsa completely, we need to eradicate ego. So in this world, we have to make compromises. There's no such thing as, as perfectly sattvic food. Bhagavan just said moderate. Moderate means moderate quantity, but it also means moderate. We shouldn't be giving over excessive attention to these things. So 
if I, if I were to write that book now, I wouldn't go into all those details. I, as I say, I did it for the satisfaction of one particular person who was attaching a lot of importance to those things. It, I think it is important, what Bhagavan has prescribed, Mittapat, Sattvic, Ahara, Niyama, it's a great aid in this path. As far as possible, I, I think a good principle to abide by is to... Um, in 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 uh, Bhagavan's time, the the prescribed diet generally was vegetarian, lacto-vegetarian is the diet that is traditionally uh, consumed by spiritual people in India. But the consumption of milk is fine if the cows are well treated. But we know in the modern day world. The dairy industry is a huge industry. There's a huge amount of cruelty involved in the dairy industry. Um, male calves are shot at birth. Um, the surplus calves are, 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 are killed for, for, the, for their tender meat. And even the milk cows are milked for a few years until they're not producing an optimal amount of milk. Where they're still producing milk, but it's still not uh, as profitable as it was. They have been uh, sold off for slaughter. So there's so much cruelty involved in the dairy industry nowadays. Unless you can have a cow of your own and feed it uh, and uh, take care of it to the end of its life, whether it's producing milk or not, uh, it is better not. It is better in the, the circumstances of the modern day world to avoid dairy and dairy products. For the, on, on the grounds of ahimsa, that is why I I say vegan diet is is best. So long as we're uh, eating a vegan diet, and um, it's good to keep our diet to to eat as simply as possible. We don't have to um, eating takeaway food or eating fast food, consumer food, this is not so, so conducive to a spiritual aspirant. Simple cooking, simple eating, simple living is the best for a spiritual aspirant. But ultimately, the outward circumstances of life may not always make these things possible. So we have to adapt to the circumstances. Ultimately, the only thing that is important is turning our attention within. All these, as Bhagavan says, it's an aid. So, Mitta Sattvika Ahara is an aid. And Ahimsa is a very, for, for ethical reasons, and ethical reasons obviously are related to spiritual reasons, following the principle of Ahimsa as far as possible is good. So, I, I, in retrospect, I think what what is there in happiness and the art of being is over-prescriptive. But as I say, it was under particular circumstances that that got included in the book. What is unbroken, unending, unchanging happiness? This is the state when one surrenders his ego. It is the goal, but can you please elaborate on it and describe it in detail? Thank you. Tatvamasi. You are that. <laughs> that is, um, what is, what is unchanging? There's only, everything in our experience is constantly changing. The world around us is changing. The mind is changing. The body is changing. 
changes the nature of phenomena. Everything other than ourselves is changing. Even the ego in whose view everything else appears is changing because ego appears in appears when we wake up or begin to dream, it disappears in sleep. So it undergoes that change of rising and subsiding. So change everything other then our own being is changing. Our own real nature alone is unchanging. That is the fundamental awareness I am. That is what is unchanging. That is happiness. That, that, that is what Bhagavan has taught us. What Bhagavan says about happiness in the first paragraph of Nana, we, we should often bear this in mind because he, Bhagavan explains this so clearly and simply. Sakala jiva galum dukumembadindri epodum sukumai irika virumbuvadalam. Since all jivas uh, like to be always happy without what is called misery, yavakum tan iditileye parama priyam iripadalam. Since for everyone the greatest love is only for oneself. Priyataku sukame karamadalalam. And since happiness alone is the cause for love, uh, in order then manamatra nidrayal dinam anubhavikam tan sabhavamana achukate adeya in order to obtain that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in dreamless sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. Adaku nana innum jnanavacharame mukhya sadhanam. For that, jnanavachara, uh, awareness investigation, called who am I? Alone is the principal means. So happiness is our own real nature. We, why do we all uh, like to be happy always? Because we love ourselves. What do we love more than any other thing? We love ourselves. Why? Because we are happiness. Um, and uh, what, what, what causes us to, to love ourselves? Because happiness is the cause of love. So we love ourselves because happiness, because happiness is our real nature. Therefore, since... So Bhagavan is giving us there three arguments why happiness is our real nature. Then he gives another argument. In in sleep, dreamless sleep, which is devoid of mind, in other words, devoid of mind means devoid of everything. There's nothing other than ourself in sleep. We are perfectly happy. Why are we happy in sleep? Because there's nothing other than ourself. So we ourselves are happiness. So how to obtain that happiness here and now in the waking state we need to know what we actually are. And to know what we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves. So what is what is unchanging, immutable happiness? We are that. And how, how to experience that? By knowing ourselves. How to know ourselves? By investigating ourselves. So Bhagavan's teachings are so simple and above all so practical. It has been said in old texts for... Thousands of years since the time of Upanishads, it's been pointed out that happiness lies within you. But what is the practical implication of that? We need to seek happiness within ourselves. We need to turn our attention back within.
within and in this context, within means a way towards ourself alone. Everything other than everything other than ourself is outside. But all our thoughts, feelings, emotions, everything, it's external in the sense that they are they are something they're extraneous to ourself. So in the context of self-investigation, turning within means turning towards ourself alone. Because happiness cannot be found in anything else other than within ourselves. I hope that adequately answers that question. Namaskar, Michael. Yes. Do you have time to take one last question? Yes, certainly. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for sharing this most beautiful, true knowledge. Um, Ram it's all Bhagavan. Bhagavan is one who shared it with us. <laughs> yes. I am um I am truly indebted. So um I'm one of those, I know one of the one of the participants asked that was, you know about the meditation time. I am blessed because I do have certain hours or certain times um that I'm free to meditate. So I do that. Yeah. I want to submit to you, I'm not sleeping. I don't sleep at this time. Um I know I lose it. The the I, I don't want to call it samadhi, but I, I, it's beautiful, but come back. My question, consciousness or awareness when you're unconscious or, or I don't know what that is. I do not know how to break that. It's almost like a mystery. I go in, come out, but I can't. I'm not aware of it. I don't know how to say it. How can one be awake when you're asleep is, I guess, what I'm asking. Awareness is our real nature. There is never a moment when we are not aware. Sleep seems to be a state, but when we mistake sleep to be a state of, of unconsciousness or non-awareness, it is because we are associating awareness with awareness of things other than ourselves. In sleep, we are not aware of anything, but we are aware. That is... Our very nature is awareness. So the only awareness in sleep is the awareness I am. And I am is obviously not an object of awareness. So sleep is, a, as Bhagavan often clarified, sleep is a state of pure awareness. So but, when I'm meditating and I go within, there's no way that knowledge can transfer to my wakeful state other than, oh, wow, I just... For example, there's an alarm, TikTok going, right? I listen to it. Slowly, slowly, it fades away and I'm gone and I come out. And, and I'm, I'm, I am uh, thinking, wow, what an experience, right? But I really didn't experience it. What you're saying is that's all I can expect. There's nothing beyond it and not to worry about it. Awareness, the real awareness, the pure awareness is like the screen in a cinema, whether pictures are projected on it or not, the screen is always there. Waking and dream are states in which pictures are projected on the screen. Sleep is a state in which the screen remains alone. Whether pictures are projected or not, it makes no difference to the screen. The screen is always there. Even when we're in the cinema, we go and we, we watch a film. We watch the film with great interest. We hardly notice the screen. 
But actually, what are we looking at all the time? We're looking only at the screen. So the, that background awareness, I am, is present all the time. There is never a moment when it isn't present. It doesn't need to be carried over from one state to another. It is the ultimate reality. It is what we actually are. By trying, by turning within, we are trying to attend to the screen alone rather than to the pictures appearing on the screen. So we are, we are so to speak, turning our attention away from the screen, uh, sorry, away from the pictures towards the screen. Everything else that we experience is a picture. The, the fundamental awareness I am alone is the screen. So we try to hold on to that awareness alone. Regarding this word samadhi, the word samadhi is used to refer to so many different types of samadhis are described. So it is not actually a very helpful word. Um, it, it, because different people mean different things. Bhagavan said, the only samadhi that is real is Sahaja Samadhi. Sahaja Samadhi is just another name for our natural state of pure awareness, of just of, of knowing and being what we actually are. That is Sahaja Samadhi. Any other type of Samadhi is just a distraction. So let us not worry about Samadhi. But what is said to, in yoga to be the deepest of all the Samadhis, the Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi, Bhagavan says that is just Manolaya. That is not our aim. We are not seeking Manolaya because we can't make any effort to attend to ourselves um, in Manolaya. How such Samadhi comes about, it comes about by withdrawing our attention from all other things. If we merely withdraw our attention from other things, we subside in samadhi. Just as every day when we get too tired to continue thinking, we withdraw our attention from all other things, we subside in sleep. So merely withdrawing our attention from other things results in manolaya. Even if that is called samadhi, that's not the samadhi we're seeking. We are seeking not manolaya, but manonasa. Manonasa can be achieved not merely by withdrawing our attention from other things, but by focusing our entire attention on ourself alone. If we attend to ourself, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, our attention is thereby withdrawn from other things. But so long as we're attending to ourselves, we cannot subside in, in, in layer. So the, 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 we, we need to be careful in this path, but we are not just subsiding into a state of layer. We need to hold on to that self-attentiveness. That is the key to following Bhagavan's path. The, the difference between like Bhagavan's path and the path of yoga, the aim of yoga is chitta vritti nirodaha, uh, 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 restraining or stopping the chitta vritti, the mental activity. But that results only in manolaya. We need to go beyond manolaya. We can go beyond manolaya only by holding on to self-attentiveness. So that is the that is what is the, the key to Bhagavan's teaching. So it's easy to remain in in you know, if you if you practice it, you can remain in Nivikalpa Samadhi for for hours, year, days, months, years, even centuries. Yeah. Bhagavan told a story about a yogi who remained in that state for 300 years. But when he came back, 
The last thought that he was in his mind before he went in was the first thought that popped up. So Bhagavan used to tell that story to illustrate the fact that vasanas are not destroyed in Manalaya. So there's no use in going into Nivikalpa Samadhi. We should have, that's why it's, a, it's advised in, uh, in some of your uh, texts avoid both thought and layer both the, the, the mental activity and the cessation of mental activity. We need to remain poised between the two in the state of Sahaja Samadhi, which is clinging to self-attentiveness. Bhagavan, in, in one place, in the, his introduction to, the, um, to his Tamil translation of Driktrisi Avivaka, in Driktrisi Avivaka, it talks about six different types of Samadhi. But Bhagavan in his introduction talks about one type of samadhi, sahaja samadhi. And he talks about the practice of sahaja samadhi, sahaja samadhi parakatal, by the practice of sahaja samadhi. What is that practice? Tanne uh, epodum bahiyanta drishti, drishti, drishti bedam indri ep, uh, epodum uh, nadam. Sahaja Samadhi Parakata. That means by the practice of self-investigate, by the practice of Sahaja Samadhi, which is always investigating oneself without any distinction between inward and outward, uh, the, the, the Bahia Drishti or the Anta Drishti, the inward looking or the outward looking. Why does Bhagavan say beyond even that? So long as we're looking outwards, we need to be told to look back within. But when we look back within, we go beyond the distinction of inside and outside. So long as we're clinging to self-attentiveness, it doesn't matter whether anything appears or disappears. We hold on to self-attentiveness alone. It's only when we allow ourselves to attend to anything other than ourselves that we have lost our hold on the self-attentiveness. Have I answered your question adequately, Sudha? Oh, wow. Um, uh, dear Michael, yes, you have. It's that self-attentiveness, hold on, holding on to it yes. is what I need to practice and yes. when work not, continues. We, we, we are not yogis. Bhagavan never asked us to practice chitta, uh, um, that is, um, chitta vritti nirodaha. That will be, happen automatically. If you attend to yourself, the chitta will automatically be stopped. But if you just try to stop the chitta without holding on to yourself, you'll end up in layer, which is very pleasant, but of no use. Well, it's, uh, temporarily it's beneficial, but it, it's yeah. of no long, long-term use. It doesn't help us to annihilate ego. Yeah. <laughs> Namo Ramanaya. Namo Ramanaya. Yeah, um, this question is... Uh... Could you speak more about how mitta, that is moderate, and sattvic pure, apply to sensory foods? Well, yes. The ahara means what is taken in. So though the immediate meaning is, is the, the food we eat, it can also be taken to imply the food we take in through our senses. Supposing you, um, you have a, a liking to watch Nowadays, um, the films they show on television, often they're very, very violent films. Some people love to watch these violent films, these sort of uh, um, 
I, I don't, I can't, I, I don't know. There's so many of these, uh, of, of these films, of sort of p police type films or secret agent type films, and you see cars blowing up and all sorts of wonderful things happening. Those are very, and all sorts of violence we see in such films. If you, if you have a liking to attend to such violent things, that obviously isn't sattvic. That's going to be uh, creating violent thoughts in your mind. So avoiding such things, we, we, as far as possible, we need to dwell on those things that are sattvic in nature. The most sattvic food for the senses is to, is to read and think about Bhagavan's teachings. Um, <clears throat> other things are, are some things are relatively less sattvic, some things are relatively more sattvic. So, uh, avoiding things that will agitate the mind. Reading a lot of news, constantly dwelling on the news, because we, the news that comes on the television or on the internet or wherever, where we get our news or we read in the newspapers, most, if, if everything goes well, it's not news. So, if, if someone lives a peaceful day, they never they don't live as a peaceful day. They don't come in the news, but if they're involved in some accident or um, some terrible thing happens to them, they come in the news. So news is what is newsworthy is mostly the bad news. The good news is seldom comes in the news. So I'm not saying we should never listen to the news. Sometimes we need to be informed what's going on around us so we adjust accordingly. But we shouldn't be addicted to watching the news all the time. We shouldn't be... So we have to use our judgment in these things. We know what whatever things that draw the mind outwards more, but agitate the mind, but depress the mind, but um, anything that, that distracts our attention away from ourselves is not sattvic. I hope that adequately answers that question. The last is a question from uh, Krish. Uh, Krish, did you want to ask it? Uh, yes, thank you. Just wanted to ask you uh, with regards to um, uh, Bhagavan, what was it? What were his thoughts on predestiny? Um, did he believe everything was preordained, or did he? Or we have right. a, a degree of self-effort, or? Bhagavan didn't have thoughts or beliefs. Yes, Bhagavan taught us the law of karma. According to the law of karma, as taught by Bhagavan, whatever actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are called agamya. Those actions bear fruit. The fruit of those actions gets stored in what is called sanchitta. And every lifetime, we, uh, we accumulate, as a general rule, we accumulate more fruit than we experience. So both Sanchitta is an ever-growing pile. From that Sanchitta, God or Guru selects the fruit that we are to experience in each life. The fruit that we uh, had been allotted for us to experience in this life is called Prarabdha. Prarabdha is preordained. It is allotted. So whatever we are to experience, we cannot avoid experiencing it. It's been preordained. Whatever we are not to experience, we cannot experience. And in order for us to experience what we are destined to experience, certain actions are necessary on our part. 
for examples, just just to take a a a a, 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 a major thing in life. Supposing it's your destiny to be a doctor or an engineer or a scientist uh, or a or, or academic philosopher or well, anything like that. For such a profession, you need a lot of training. You need to undergo all the. You need to study. You need to pass exams. You need to get your your um, your your doctorate, your PhD, or whatever it is. So, or see, if it's your destiny to be, say, a medical doctor, you you will have to do all. You you will be made to do all those actions that are necessary in order to become a doctor, studying, passing your exams, and so on. So some of the actions done by mind, speech, and body are driven by, in accordance, uh, um, actions we are made to do by God in accordance with our prarabdha. But that doesn't mean all the actions we do by mind, speech, and body are driven by prarabdha. We we act under the sway of our vasanas. The actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are agamya which bear fruit, which we later may experience as prarabdha, in some not in this life, in some later life. Nothing we can do in this life can change what we are to experience. So yes, Bhagavan did, Bhagavan, uh, Bhagavan uh, taught that we have freedom of will. We are free to be swayed by our vasanas or not to be swayed by them, that we have that freedom. But what we are to experience is preordained. So Bhagavan taught both freedom of will and pre uh, 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 preordainment. What is preordained is the fruit of actions we've done in the past under the sway of misusing our freedom of will. Uh, so that's a very, very brief summary of what Bhagavan taught us about the law of karma. Okay. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. I'll have to mull over that one. But, but, but we have that freedom of will. The wise way to use that freedom of will is not to allow ourselves to be swayed by our Bishaya Vasanas and therefore go outwards, to be swayed only by the Sat Vasana, the liking to go within. That is the only correct use of the freedom we have. Okay. So basically, we could, it's either we place our attention outwards or inwards. That's ultimately our free will. Yes. But if you place your attention outwards, you can be, you, you're, you'll have vasanas pulling you in all sorts of directions. It's yep. up to you to which direction you, which vasana you allow yourself to be swayed by. So there is always that freedom is there. But the correct, the correct use of the freedom is to turn our attention within. Yeah, that's simplified a lot. That's beautiful. Yeah.